Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our D.C. studio, where I'm excited to be joined by John Lieber. John is a principal in our National Economics and Statistics Group. Prior to joining PwC, John worked as the practice head for the United States at the Eurasia Group, the largest political risk consulting firm. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. So a lot of talk post-election about trade and even pre-election about trade. So wanted to maybe, first of all, just get a little bit about your background, who are you, and uh, working more a lot with us tax folks on some of these trade issues. Yeah, so I come to this, I did about 12 years in the government as a policy advisor, an economic policy advisor, both in the White House, the House Ways and Means Committee, and most recently for Senate Majority Leader McConnell, um, helping uh, policymakers kind of understand and, and the policies uh, behind tax, trade, banking, housing, things like that, and then also helping them navigate the politics of it as well. So, you know, my my background's all, all in this policy world. So talk a little bit about tariffs and lots of discussions about trade wars and what's taking place. You know, as a international tax advisor, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time in my career is doing with supply chains, you know, understanding from a tax perspective, how can companies be the most efficient as products are coming around the world? And as you know, grew up in the Midwest, so dealt with a lot of manufacturers and and widget makers. But maybe if you can spend a few minutes talking about, you know, what are tariffs? What is trade? Why is this important for both our U.S. and non-U.S. based clients? Sure. So, you know, the policy story of 2017 was, of course, tax reform. It was what every client was worried about and wanted to follow. Every business was going to be, you know, trying to predict what was next in terms of where the rate would land and what would happen to the, the tax system. And the policy story of 2018, and I think for 2019 as well, is going to be this trade issue. And kind of zooming back a little bit and looking at it from a political lens, if you look at President Trump's you know, 2016 campaign and his really unexpected victory, it, it led on two key policy issues. The first was trade and the second was immigration. And you know, if you look at the electoral map he put together, he could not have been president if he hadn't won Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, which are three states that no Republican had won since 1992. Uh, if you, you know, in exit polls, they asked voters, how important was international trade to you uh, in your vote? Uh, nationally, about uh, 57% of voters said trade was very important. For Trump voters, it was 67%. So this is a big issue, and especially in those kind of Midwestern industrial states. So President Trump came into office, and he's followed through on his campaign promises in a way that I think we can safely say no other president probably would have done. Um, you've got really kind of three and a half trade wars going on right now. You've got the uh, renegotiation of NAFTA, which has now been renegotiated as the USMCA. You've got an ongoing tariff battle with China, uh, with the you know these section what they're called Section 301 tariffs in place, and you've got worldwide steel and aluminum and tariffs in place: 10% on aluminum, 25% on steel. And then the half trade war is the potential uh, future escalation to cover automobiles, which President Trump has threatened multiple times. It's really about it's really kind of a European and a Japanese story. So you've got the president coming into office with a very unique policy mandate and aggressively following through on that in order to try to earn concessions from our trading partners. And so before we unpack these three and a half trade wars, because I certainly want to learn more about this, I mean, 
fundamentally, I presume those voters really view trade in the context of the jobs, right? And the fact that a lot of the manufacturing and frankly, the core manufacturing in the areas where I grew up and have spent a lot of time in my career in the Rust Belt have have left and have gone to lower cost markets, you know, as manufacturing, you know, has developed and as globalization has developed. Yeah. So so talk a little bit about, you know, how how jobs and how the how that relates specifically to to tariff and trade policy. Yeah, so there's been obviously a lot of changes in the global economy over the last 30 years. There's been the internationalization of finance. There's been this you know, movement towards globalization. And the United States has really been on the forefront of all of that. The United States is the most open economy in the world. We have very little trade barriers when it comes to tariffs. We are leaders in pushing through uh, new trade agreements all over the developing developed world and in the developing world. Mm-hmm. And we've been leaders in setting up, you know, the GATT and the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which has really helped open up a lot of other countries and created a framework for resolving disputes uh, between different countries that without having to resolve to, you know, these kind of trade wars that we're seeing today. Um, You know, this has all been an ongoing story over the last 30 years. It's been a driving force behind globalization. It's resulted in a massive lowering in tariffs across the world and also in, you know, a a, a large increase in living standards, especially in places like China, uh, Mexico, Southeast Asia and other places that have become the global sourcing center for the world. And if you look back, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, take China, for example, uh, communist economy, very closed off, not a lot of American investment there, not a lot of export opportunities or opportunities for U.S. firms to sell into China. Starting in 1979, that all changes. China takes a much more aggressive approach towards opening its borders, and the U.S. US companies are there ready to take advantage of it. And because of that, you've seen a lot of uh, uh, production that used to happen inside the United States move overseas. The United States manufactures more than it ever has before. So the, the U- U.S. manufacturing sector has not gone away. We're manufa- we're, our output is greater than it's ever been. But we're doing it with fewer jobs because we're doing it more efficiently. And we're relying on lower cost parts and other things coming in from China and Mexico and other manufacturing centers. Yeah, one of the things that I found interesting, even in my just relatively short 20-year career, is working with a lot of particularly consumer product companies that had sourced an amazing amount of stuff or a very, very high percentage of stuff, for example, out of China. And then over the last even 10, five, five to 10 years, China's now becoming more expensive. So companies are looking to other jurisdictions, geographies throughout Southeast Asia to, to find that next lower cost production. And I think consequently, those economies keep getting built up in, in, in these other countries. Yeah. And, you know, I think the story in China has been that, you know, while it has this huge labor force, this huge population that can be used for kind of low cost assembly, those labor costs have gone up a lot, as you as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you've seen a real boom across Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, all these places are becoming very important manufacturing centers for the United States. And of course, the United States doesn't put a lot of tariffs on the goods coming in from those countries. So it's very easy for an American company to travel over there, find a you know jurisdiction that welcomes them, set up shop, and then ship stuff back to the U.S. Under President Trump, that, of course, is all changing now. Uh, you know, He views the problem in the U.S. economy as too much of this has gone on. And his tool that he's chosen to use, that Congress has empowered him to use, is tariffs. So let's dive in. So maybe we start with China, and then we can head to the, to, to the USMCA. Talk a little bit. What is going on in China today? What are you, you know, what are some of the things that are impacting our, our clients 
that 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 you've seen and what are people really focused on? So, you know, the president is not the first person to run against China. Mitt Romney said he was going to get tough on China. China has been a huge concern in Congress for a very long time. There's been efforts to sanction China for currency manipulation in the 2000s, which a lot of American manufacturers were accusing them of doing at the time. Congress has given the president enormous authorities to renegotiate or to impose tariffs during a trade negotiation. Uh, Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 gives the president virtually unlimited powers to impose tariffs or quotas or full bans on imports from any country in which he deems to be violating one kind of trade agreement or another. And that that, that section of it's pretty vague. So he actually has enormous powers here to do this. Mm-hmm. And so what he's been doing is they the administration very early on did an investigation into Chinese intellectual property practices, uh, Chinese industrial policy, which includes uh, subsidies for state-owned em- enterprises, uh, subsidies for banks that have been providing low-cost loans to steel manufacturers, aluminum manufacturers, and others. And looking at the whole of Chinese industrial policy and saying, you know, the Chinese are out to get us. They are trying to supplant the United States as the global leader in any number of technologies, AI, robotics, uh, biopharmaceutical, whatever the issue is, the Chinese are interested in becoming the leader in that space. And, uh, of course, displacing the U.S. as the current leader. So the administrations use these Section 301 authorities to try to open up negotiation with China. And in doing so, they've imposed now three rounds of tariffs. The first round was initially proposed to be $50 billion. They scaled that back to $16 billion. But then they went and imposed the second round of $34 billion. Uh, and the Chinese responded in kind with their own uh, rounds totaling $50 billion in tariffs. So now you've got $100 billion in, in, in what was previously unfettered trade that's now subject, subject to tariffs between the two countries. Uh, the administration said, well, that's not fair. You can't retaliate against us. So they came back over the top with a new round of $200 billion. So you've got $250 billion of goods coming in from China uh, out of about $500 billion in 2017, subject to either 10 or 25% tariffs. So what does that mean then for those that are actually having the, the, the those that the tariff is imposed upon? In other words, you know, as those goods, because, you know, Companies will make a deal with with their customers, presumably bring those products over. I'm guessing some that are using it in their manufacturing process. Maybe they haven't. They're unable to pass it on to their customers. Some they they may be able to to pass it on. But, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective, I mean, what what does that mean for, you know, those in those industries that are impacted? Yeah. So, you know, a company can't avoid these tariffs. If You know, you got to put the good in the boat, you send it over here and you're going to be paying the tariffs. And, and a lot of these contracts, as you point out, have very long lead times. So a lot of companies earlier this year were rudely surprised when they got their tariff bill and they found out, oh, wow, I'm paying 25 percent more than I thought I was going to be paying. Um Right now, um, you know, there is some opportunities to try to avoid these tariffs. Some companies are moving. Uh, some, some of the tariffs are set to go from 10 to 25% on January 1st of next year. So they're moving shipments forward in time where they can. A lot of times you can't do that because you'll contract out for something a year in advance. But if you can get it into the U.S. by December 31st, then you can avoid a 15%. You know, you're getting it a 15% on sale. Because it's imposed when it effectively when it comes gets, into yeah. the U.S. Right, when you when take possession, when the U.S. entity takes possession of it. Um, 
Other companies are finding ways around these by moving production out of China. You know, they'll take a fab out of the southern China, put it on a boat, move it to South Korea. And then now they're doing their production in South Korea and shipping it back to the United States. Now, that's not the goal of the Trump administration. The Trump administration wants to see that production come back to the United States. But we have high costs of labor, and it's just not that easy to kind of, you know, reorient your entire supply chain overnight to make that happen. With time, you know, this is... I, th- I think one of the critical questions observers are asking right now is how long is this going to last? Is this the kind of thing where there is a couple of concessions that each side can make and the trade war will be resolved quickly? And my feeling is the answer is no, that this is not about, well, you know, you buy some more Boeing planes and we'll buy some more, you know, routers from uh, mm-hmm. whoever, ZTE or whomever, and, you know, we'll call it a day. I don't think that's what this is. I think this is about fundamentally reorienting Uh, global supply chains away from China and back to the United States or back to the United States Democratic allies. Because this isn't just about trade policy. If you listen to the speeches of administration officials in in recent weeks, look at the national security strategy that was released in late 2017. This is about Chinese human rights abuses. This is about Chinese military power. This is about Chinese influence around uh, the Pacific and what that means for the future of the United States. So I don't, those aren't, those aren't easy questions. Those aren't things that are just going away tomorrow. So I think that this actually could be a conflict that is uh, longer, wider, and have much deeper impacts than, than people were anticipating six months ago. And we're, we're digressing a little bit, but this is fascinating. You know, I, my also my understanding is that China holds more you know U.S. treasuries than anybody on the planet. How does that does that? I mean, that seems like a pretty important card that they sure. could play yeah. to manage some of these issues. But I haven't really read or heard much ab- about that. And or do, or do those just kind of separate issues? No, it, it could be. And that's a threat that's been played before um, during the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, uh, there was some talk of uh, the Russians and the Chinese aligning to try to you know, hurt American economic prospects through this large store of U.S. treasuries. But the reason China has so many treasuries is because they have uh, a currency peg. And so in order to maintain the currency peg where they want it, they have to buy up this enormous supply of U.S. treasuries. And were they to unload those treasuries, which would, of course, massively raise U.S. borrowing costs and hurt the dollar, they would also be affecting their currency in a way they don't want to affect it, where it's suddenly going to make Chinese goods a lot more expensive. Um, because of the currency movement. So it's unlikely in my mind that they would actually want to play that card because they're as likely to hurt themselves as they are to hurt the United States. There's a saying that, you know, if you owe the bank $1,000, then, you know, the bank owns you effectively. If you owe the bank $100 million, then you basically own the bank because you can't default because the bank is really relying on you to make that payment, uh, make that payment for their, you know, uh, their survival. And that's kind of the situation you have with the U.S. Treasury. Makes a ton of sense. All right, so let's talk about the U.S. I'm still struggling with this. USMCA. USMC. NAFTA yeah. was just so easy yeah, to easy. say. I think that people are going to be calling it NAFTA for quite NAFTA 2.0. NAFTA, NAFTA, NAFTA. NAFTA, NAFTA. Oh, I like uh, this. <laughs> yeah, they, we're big on acronyms here on the cross border <clears throat> tax talks. We've got FIDI. We got guilty. Yeah. We got all kinds of acronyms. So AFTA, NAFTA is, <laughs> might be my new might be my new favorite. But talk a little bit about that. I assume kind of similar policy concerns, specifically maybe as we think about manufacturing in Mexico. Absolutely. But help me unpack mm-hmm. that and understand how Canada fits in. So Mexico has been a bad guy on the U.S. political scene since the deal was signed in, in the mid-90s. Um, you've got a 30-year history here of NAFTA and a 30-year history of, of job loss from the industrial Midwest and, a lot of the, and, and automobile job loss as well. 
a lot of those jobs have gone to Mexico. Some of them have gone to the southern United States where the labor laws are more permissive, um, right to work states. Uh, but to the extent that there has been job loss to Mexico, NAFTA has really been the scapegoat. Um, President Obama ran saying he was going to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, candidate Romney ran saying he was going to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, incidentally, President Obama did renegotiate NAFTA. He just changed it into what was called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where instead of renegotiating the terms of NAFTA, he made he struck a deal with uh, 11 other countries to create the broadest, largest trade agreement in world history, covering 40% of GDP. President Trump's first act coming into office was to withdraw the U.S. from the TPP. Um, and so he then launched his own renegotiation of NAFTA, which borrowed a lot of elements from TPP in terms of modernizing the deal to include things like digital trade, stronger intellectual property protections. There's a chapter on government procurement that looks a lot like TPP. So there's a lot of elements here that were kind of already out there. The big changes in the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0 are, well, the most important thing about it is that it preserves the basic framework of NAFTA by keeping in place the zero tariffs across North American borders. So that's critical. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those zero tariffs, a lot of companies did a lot of planning around that, moved a lot of their operations into Canada or into Mexico, and now you've got this kind of you know, North American trading superpower block, this manufacturing superpower, where you know your car, some part of your car, could have traveled across the border a dozen times over the course of its manufacture, where you know the door is, is built in Canada, thrown onto the body in Mexico and then the you know mufflers thrown on the body somewhere in America then it's shipped back down south so this happens all the time and as a tax guy it's the maquiladora regime that That's right. is, it, it, it we're very familiar with and obviously it allows the the US principle if you will that continues to maintain ownership of the product as it goes down there and then Mexico does the does the manufacturing so where I'm very familiar with it from a tax perspective just given the the transfer pricing that is is occurs as a result of the maquilador regime in Mexico yeah and so the, and the the important thing is that regime is going to continue the big changes come on the content requirements specifically for automobiles where previously a car had to have 62.5% of the car assembled from made from North American parts to qualify for NAFTA treatment. Now it's 75%. Uh, so higher content requirements, meaning in theory you should see more production in North America. And then the second piece that's really important is a new average minimum wage. So a car to qualify for NAFTA treatment has to have, have an average wage of production workers of $16 an hour. Today, the average Mexican auto worker is making about $4 an hour. So should that be a binding constraint? And it won't necessarily be a binding constraint because you can average in some of your higher wage workers from Canada and the United States. Uh, it should put upward pressure on Mexican wages, which should also have spillover effects outside of the automobile industry uh, across all Mexican manufacturing because those jobs are going to be a lot more appealing as workers see that, oh, now the Mexican auto worker is making, I don't know what it's going to be, 6 7 $8 an hour. And then how does that impact pricing? You know, as we've talked about, I mean, I, I everything gets presumably... Everything's going to get more expensive. Um, you know, you should see fewer parts coming in from Asia. Uh, you should see more parts, more opportunities for manufacturing in North America. Uh, so better, some more job opportunities, but more expensive cars for the final consumer. And I assume the the lead time to be able to, for companies to be able to change their supply chains or just fundamentally developing manufacturing capabilities for some of these parts that I'm guessing haven't been made here for a couple decades at least, 
the lead time of that has to be a long time. So there's still a lot of auto part manufacturing that goes on in the United States. If you if you look at many states' economies, uh, one of their biggest exports is auto parts. And there's a lot of large auto part <clears throat> makers that are still in North America. Um, you know, one of the things I think a lot of companies are dealing with right now is the uncertainty. Because while there was an agreement between the three countries on the USMCA, it has yet to be ratified by the United States. And that process now, with the Democrats taking control of the House of Representatives, there's some uncertainty surrounding that. Ultimately, you know, I still expect it will get ratified next year. But, you know, it's an open question. And there may be some changes that have to come to the deal before that could happen. What is the ratification process to, to remind me for these type oh, of boy, trade we agreements? Could tell, we could do a whole other episode on the ratification process if you want. But basically, there's something called Trade Promotion Authority where Congress has uh, told the administration, go ahead and negotiate some trade deals with you know whomever you want. Let us know before you do it. We want to know who you're talking to and why. He, they cre- Congress creates some constraints. You know, you can do this, you can do that. We want you to try to achieve this. You know, look for this market access. You know, preserve this agricultural preference. Whatever. The administration consults with Congress throughout the process, and then when they're done, they present a final package to Congress, and they say, "Here's a trade bill. Take it or leave it." Congress then considers it under expedited procedures. Procedures meaning it has a set timeline by which they have to vote, and they can't amend it. So that's really important because a lot of the times when the administration negotiates a deal, you send it up to um, Congress and a coalition of members from, say, automobile manufacturing states say, ah, this is going to hurt us and they want to amend it. And that doesn't really work in international negotiations. So the deals get sent to Congress. They either give they're guaranteed to give it an upper down, upper down vote, you know, a, a guaranteed vote one way or the other. And uh, I don't think there's ever been a trade deal under this process that failed. Okay. The U.S.-Columbia trade agreement in 2008 was submitted to Congress under Trade Promotion Authority, and Nancy Pelosi, the then Speaker, passed a rule to say, no, we're not considering this. And she turned, you know, they call that turning off the clock, because once it's submitted, that starts the consideration clock. Uh, President Bush had to basically withdraw the agreement, and then President Obama renegotiated the agreement over the next three years and finally resubmitted it for ratification and got it through. Got it. All right, so... The third one, steel and aluminum. Yeah, in some ways, this is kind of the least interesting one because there's not much happening on it. These were imposed last year. Uh, President Trump kind of uh, did this as a way of fulfilling a campaign promise. And while it's gotten a lot of support amongst steel manufacturers in the U.S. and some support amongst steel workers unions in the U.S., most people are not very happy with it, uh, including a lot of our trading partners. This was done under uh, something called Section 201, which is another one of these powers that Congress has delegated to the president and allows the president to impose whatever tariffs he wants in cases where trade uh, threatens the U.S. national security. So in this case, the Commerce Department does a study that says steel and aluminum, uh, relying on imports of steel and aluminum, are threats to the U.S. military industrial manufacturing base. Mm. You know, if we ever go to war, we can't rely on South Korean steel to make our tanks. So we need to put in place tariffs in order to improve the U.S. manufacturing capabilities and capacity. And in doing so, you know, in order to get there, uh, the president can put in place these tariffs. So he did that last year. It's really um, was an unexpected move. 
because it's not just, you know, China or Russia or places that may be considered hostile to, to the United States. It's also against Canada and Mexico, which are explicitly part of the U.S. defense production base. So these are countries that have, you know, very aligned militarily and, you know, not are, are staunch allies, mm-hmm. um, but they're paying the tariffs as well. So worldwide, 25% tariffs on steel, 10% tariffs on aluminum. A couple of countries have worked out exemptions, South Korea, Brazil, uh, have quotas in place where they can ship a certain amount of steel, then they have to stop. Uh, and that's how they got around the tariffs. But otherwise, they're here. Looks like they're here for at least the indefinite future. Um, a lot of people were surprised that Canada and Mexico didn't work out an exemption to these when they were renegotiating NAFTA. Uh, and there's some speculation they may find some way to get out of these tariffs before they actually sign the deal, uh, NAFTA, on November 30th. So the U.S. was actually able to impose these tariffs on Mexico and Canada, despite even the existing NAFTA? Yeah, because of, there's a national security, because of the national security exemption. Ah. And, you know, the reality is when a, when a country acts in a, uh, in a protectionist manner to impose tariffs, there's, you know, other countries have recourse. They can go to the WTO and complain. NAFTA has special state-to-state tribunals they can complain to. But at the end of the day, you know, your only real retribution is other tariffs. And so Canada and Mexico both responded by putting in place other tariffs. They retaliated in kind, um, but they really want access to the U.S. steel market. And so they really want these to go away. Sure. All right. And then the last one, the half auto. Yeah. So the autos is kind of the big question mark, I think, going into 2019. There's a lot of unresolved issues in the trade space, like we talked about China, mm-hmm. USMCA. Um, but the president has said that he doesn't I think his line is something like he doesn't understand why we've got Mercedes driving down Fifth Avenue. You know, those should all be Cadillacs, I guess. So he's threatened uh, automobile tariffs. And this is a this would be a significant escalation, because if you look at U.S. China trade, um, you know, it's about we imported about five hundred billion dollars from China last year. And auto trade is about five hundred billion dollars of, of an industry. And it would you know, it affects all of our biggest partners. It affects many politically important states. So and and the automobile industry in this country is enormous. So were they to impose these tariffs on it basically be Japan and the European Union, it would be a significant escalation in the trade war. Interestingly, Canada and Mexico won a partial exemption from any future auto tariffs uh, through the USMCA process where the president basically or the administration said you can continue to import current levels of automobiles and automobile parts into the United States. But beyond that, we would impose new tariffs. Don't a lot of those big foreign auto manufacturers actually have yeah, manufacturing? Yeah, BMW's got a huge plant right. in South Carolina. Like a lot of these Volkswagen's huge in the South. Um, Nissan's got a big plant in Tennessee. So a lot of these companies are already in the United States. So are they exempt from the tariffs then because it's production, manufactured Production here? that happened here would be exempt. But, you know, if they have to bring over a seat from Europe or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the content, the percentage of content made in North America for a lot of these cars or in, in the U.S., um, you know, a lot of it is imported. Um, so it, it kind of depends on the, the production line, what car it is. Some cars are, you know, 100% made in Japan. Some cars are 50% made in Mexico. Some cars are 75% made in the U.S. So it all depends. But anything that's being imported would be subject to a new tariff. I see. And this is speculative right now. We don't actually know if it's going to happen. President Trump is, you know, he's using this threat as a way of opening uh, negotiation channels, and that's been effective so far because the year there's now kind of bilateral or, or, uh, talks between the U- EU and the U.S. to kind of set up a framework for working towards an eventual free trade agreement. And the same thing's happening with Japan. 
Uh, Japan really didn't want to do a bilateral trade agreement with the U.S. Japan really wants the U.S. to reenter the Trans-Pacific uh, Trans Partnership um, because Japan is now the leading economy in that deal now that the U.S. pulled out. But because of the threat of auto tariffs, which would be extremely material for the Japanese economy, uh, they've now started these bilateral negotiations. Yeah, th this is just fascinating, John. I'm involved with a number of discussions with our clients from our business people where we think about some of the massive tax changes that are taking place across the globe. Obviously, first we have here in the U.S. where some of the things that we've talked about on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast are global intangible low-taxed income, which arguably is not really related to intangible or low taxed income, but which impacts companies, the base erosion, anti-abuse tax, the foreign derived intangible income, all of these are impacting the economics, right? For our clients as they decide where should they put manufacturing? Where do they want to expand? What deals do they look at? And then as we look around the world, we have the OECD BEPS initiative specifically, we've got the anti-tax avoidance directive, and you know some of those provisions that aren't even frankly unique to Europe just around the globe are really impacting those decisions and so a number of companies are kind of looking around saying from a tax perspective what is the most optimal supply chain under this new world order from a tax perspective and then i think that now with these three and a half trade wars as you describe you know that really impacts the economics as well as far as where those decisions you know to to invest and how to to make key investments and I Obviously, some of the tax incentive in the U.S. with immediate expensing, but then some of maybe the inconsistent policies with the way foreign-derived intangible income really makes this a kind of multi-dimensional calculus. Right. It's very, it's extremely complicated. Certainly, from a tariff perspective, if you want to sell to the U.S. market, you're better off being in the U.S. That's where you want to produce. Now, you may have higher labor costs. You may face labor shortages in the U.S. right now with unemployment being below 4%. It's hard for companies to find the workers they need. But from a pure tariff perspective, if you want to sell here, it's best to be located here. Now, probably second best would be Canada or Mexico once the renegotiated NAFTA gets through because those are designed to give tariff-free access into the United States. So those aren't bad places to be either. But um, you know, a lot of companies are trying to figure out, can we afford to move back to the U.S.? What does that look like? And if we can't, where do we go to try to minimize our, our tariff bill? Right. And then obviously labor cost besides the, the tariff cost and then obviously the after tax return, after tax cost and return on the investment is going to play a big role in, in those overall economics. You know, the U.S. obviously has moved down to a 21 percent rate, which kind of puts them in the middle of the pack. Canada and Mexico are still relatively high as far as the, the tax that you pay for, you know, the income earned in those jurisdictions. And you've got immediate expensing, which is a real nice bonus if you want to relocate here and you're bringing factories back. So this is all a coordinated strategy. I mean, I think there's some um, dismissal of the administration as having this kind of coordinated strategy. But if you look at it, their goal is really to, you know, shore up the American industrial base. And all of these policies combined really get at that. So I, I think in five years, what's the result of all these policies? Well, I think President Trump would like to see all these policies, meaning, you know, more jobs, higher paying jobs, kind of, you know, making America great again. That's what it's all about. Um, question if they're going to be that successful. I think there are price effects that happen when you are slapping tariffs on global supply chains. Interestingly, so far, if you look at the macroeconomic statistics, you haven't really seen an impact from these trade wars. Part of the reason for that is the, you know, if you look at, you know, the first place you'd expect that to show up would be in inflation because prices are going up. 
but that hasn't really happened yet. Interest rates are still low. Uh, labor doesn't really have a strong bargaining position, so you're not seeing wages increase very quickly. Um, and you've got this stimulus effect from uh, workers' paychecks growing, uh, corporations having higher after-tax profits because of the 2017 tax bill. So all of that is keeping the economy really booming right now and preventing the tariff wars from showing up in any macroeconomic statistics. Now, if you talk to a lot of our small, smaller companies, they'll say they're getting crushed by these tariffs. Mm -hmm. They can't source anything from anywhere and they can't afford to pay these high tariffs. And that's true. And that's having really bad effects at, on the you know, micro level. But macroeconomically, and if you're looking at bigger companies, there's really very little effect being seen so far. Yeah, I certainly have seen a lot of that in St. Louis, my hometown, where some of those smaller companies have, have really been impacted. And frankly, a lot of those are some of the ones that have gotten some national coverage with respect to the smaller businesses as opposed to the larger multinationals, where it's obviously a lot easier for them to potentially change some of the sourcing, or even if they don't have to change anything in the short term, they're just much bigger and can can, adapt, can absorb the cost and absorb the yeah. cost. And you're seeing, you know, there's just some parts you can't get except from China. You just there's some things that aren't made except that, you know, either whether it's a natural resource or some kind of mach finished machine part or whatever it is. There's some things you just can't get outside of China. And it may take, you know, maybe in a few years, the capacity is built up somewhere else. And, but that's going to take some time for that to work its way through the system. Well, John, this has been a incredibly educational session for, for myself to, to learn more about this. And it's going to be really interesting to see how things shake out over the coming months post-election and then over the years as far as some of the macroeconomic implications of, of the three and a half trade wars. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to John Lieber, principal in our National Economics and Statistics Group. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader in the U.S. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.